this is The Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins, and we're the podcast keeping GPs informed with all the latest news, clinical development and politics. And at the moment, it's election season for the RACGP, so today I'm interviewing another candidate running for the position of president. This episode, I'm joined by the only contender from Queensland, a GP working across both clinical practice and in GP training, Dr. John Buckley. Welcome to the show. Oh, Francine, thank you for the warm welcome and hello to everybody listening. And at the beginning, I also just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of where everybody is. For me, that's the Turbul and Yagara people on the north side of Brisbane, the elders past, present and emerging, and in particular, any Indigenous people who listen to this podcast, Francine. Thank you for that, John. So, John, you were the most recent addition to the ballot. And so for those who don't already know you, could you share with us a little bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, thanks very much, Francine. Well, I was I was the last one to nominate, I think, at about 11.30 on, with the deadline at midday, but it, it doesn't mean I wasn't planning before that. But, you know, sneak in under the radar. So I'm a GP in Brisbane. I uh, grew up in Brisbane, did my medical training in Brisbane and spent the first 10 years after I graduated in central Queensland in, uh, in a regional city and in a very small town. And then I came back to Brisbane in 1994 to take up a role in general practice training as an educator. And uh, I did a bit of a Stephen Bradbury that uh, gradually everybody else fell away and left me in charge. So I managed the GP training program towards the end of the college time in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then when training, training moved and transitioned across uh, to the current system, which is about to change again, I moved with that and I've been a director of training in the southern part of Queensland since 2002. I still work in general practice on the outer parts of northern Brisbane at Albany Creek, where I again have been in practice since coming back to Brisbane in, in 1994. So I've been amongst that community for quite a while as well. And you just mentioned that training is about to come back to the college after many years. I have to ask, is that the reason why you decided to put your hand up and run for president this time around? It's part of it, Francine. It's an extraordinary alignment. I think if you'd spoken to me through most of my life, I wouldn't have contemplated running for president. This next two years for the college is extraordinary Uh, in itself. It's an extraordinary time for the college, but for me... It's, uh, it's taking back the training, which is, you know, ultimately where I think uh, for all colleges, uh, the training should be with the colleges. I think it's been managed uh, well in that circumstance, but it's a really welcome relief. But we've also, we're having to change our college exam. We're getting massive changes to CPD. Uh, we're getting these things that I've worked on and lived with for the last 26 years, and uh, they're all happening at once so that that's really I couldn't quite believe when I when I looked ahead two years and saw this presidential term is going to see all these changes and and probably closest to my heart of all the changes is we're going to be able to launch uh, a separate rural fellowship Um, I've worked as a rural educator you know because of my previous rural experience even though I've been in the city a long time I've been working with the Rural Training of the College since 1994. I was there with all the challenges in the mid-90s about a Rural Fellowship, and now we're going to have one, and it's a really most welcome opportunity, and it's going to be really exciting. There's a lot of work to do there, but all of those things together, I couldn't quite see how I couldn't run for president and want to play a role in what's happening and bring to that what I can. 
Yeah, as you've just pointed out, it is going to be a massive two years. And I think that's really reflected in having six candidates run for the presidency, which has to be, you know, one of the all time uh, highs for the amount of candidates. I'm, I'm old, but I'm not the oldest, but I certainly don't remember. We did have five a couple of elections ago, but it's a fantastic sign for the college that there are all these people interested um, and willing to put their hand up. I think it's a real show of faith. And what we want, all candidates want in return, is a really good voter turnout. Traditionally, the voter turnout's about 10%. We'd love it to be so much higher. So whoever wins can go to government and go elsewhere and, and be able to say they've got the backing of 10 or 15,000 GPs, not three or 4,000. So I'd really urge people with this great selection of candidates to, to vote and to really encourage their colleagues to vote as well. More difficult question, what do you think are the most important skills that the next president of the college needs to have? I, uh, I have a particular view about leadership, Francine, and I, I guess my the person I admire most in leadership is probably Gandhi. I, I think the skill required at this time is some healing. There is a lot of transition. There is a lot of change management. I think that's going to the biggest part to manage, along with you know, the change management of a new CEO, but working with the CEO on all these changes I've just described. So change management, but in a listening and healing way, there is people who are disengaged. There are people who are being hurt by the direct effects of COVID-19, but for some of the peripheral financial and other effects, there are people who don't uh, feel they trust the college. There are people who are going to already experienced difficulty with the changes upcoming exam and there's some concern about the changes in the CPD environment. So uh, someone who can help support, heal and uh, and work with people, uh, there's always this mistrust of government. And I, I say in reverse, for whatever reason, they don't seem to trust us. And I really want to change that. If I want to change one thing, I'd love to change the way government seems to think that they can't trust us and they release things and they put barriers around that and they put red tape around it instead of trusting GPs to just do a great job and be the efficient engine room of the health system that we really are. Within that, what kind of concrete steps do you see as being necessary to improve the power of general practice and its voice in Canberra? I just think Chris Hogan put something on Facebook the other night talking about the fact that people, no matter how hard we've tried, still don't really understand what we do. And I want to add to that what, what we think and who we are. And I really want to get some simple messages and understanding of general practice. We talk about our efficiency. We talk about being the engine room and the heart of the health system. And we, we know it, but I'm not sure that everybody really believes that. An easy comparison is, is when people talk about uh, nurse-led clinics or, or pharmacies expanding what they do with patients. Every GP consultation has a prequel and a sequel. When I see someone today, what happened before matters. When I see them today, what we do today will affect what happens next time I see them. The knowledge we have of each other as doctor and patient uh, the understanding of the progression of what's going on in people's lives. And even if I see them today for a routine procedure, like uh, I was going to say pap smear, but a cervical screening test, of course, as they are now, or an immunisation or a straightforward certificate, the relationship builds. And I'll probably talk to them about their family or their kids or how 
this got better or that didn't or how that medication's going. So there's this continue addition of what we do. And I really want to sit and explain and talk through what happens in a general practice consultation and where that extreme value is. And one of the things that a lot of members are talking about already is the fact that they may not need to be a member of uh, one of the GP colleges going forward, especially with the looming passing of the CBD home legislation. How would you ensure that the college remains uh, an attractive value proposition to members? Isn't that a wonderful challenge? You know, the college has to stand on its feet and it's got nearly 40,000 members and needs to work to retain them because that's where its strength, advocacy and viability comes from. Uh, the best way is for the college to engage with members and to be, I think one of the challenges has been a, an apparent lack of transparency. I don't really believe that so much, but I, I know members feel that. Francine, last year, the, the college undertook a consultation on member engagement, and I really enjoyed taking part in that. And I think that's the first key is that you want people to have their CPD home at the RSEGP because you want them to feel at home. In the 90s, when I worked at the college and as a college new fellow, it was like a big club and there was a collegiality to it. But in the early 2000s, the college nearly went broke. Now the college is a really positive, thriving business, but the members don't feel connected to that in the way that they should. And I really want to look at what the members said in that consultation. I know what I said and what the participation was. For me, the main thing that seems to have happened is that there isn't a GP voice in the higher echelons of the college. Obviously, there's the board, but as you work your way down through the college, uh, there's no GPs there with real meaningful roles until recently, and it's already changing. We have the remarkable Jennifer Yates is on the college executive as a GP. We've got five new clinical leads appointed in actually significant roles, you know, 0.4, 0.5, leading various parts of the college training, changing and transitions that's going on. This is the sort of change we need, not because they need to see the people there, but we need voices of GPs constantly reminding everyone in the college of what GPs are, what we do, what we think. Now, that's not a criticism of the college staff. The college staff are extraordinary people. I've said, though, for a long time, it's really hard to know what it's like to be a GP if you haven't sat at that desk with that patient and felt the feelings and tried to do the role. And I love working with the college staff and I would love them to better understand who we are and have genuine conversations about that. And I know that you've worked for a very long time in the training space. So I did want to ask uh, how you think that that might help you in maybe making the entire GP profession more attractive to the next generation of potential GPs? Um, well, I hope so, Francine. I, I've certainly spoken with a lot of registrars, a lot of people who are registrars who have now been GPs for a long time. This year has been unusual, hasn't it? I, during our information sessions, prompted by my current CEO, uh, speaking to applicants for the program, I added something to my usual spiel for a want of a better word. I said, if you really want to understand general practice, if you want to be excited by general practice and inspired by general practice, just look around you right now. Look at where the GP response in the bushfires was strong and what a difference it made, but particularly look across Australia at 
the GP response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Look at what GPs are doing for their practices, for their communities. Look at what's happening nationally with the, you know, the alliance and the work of the RSCGP president, the Akron president, AMA, everybody contributing in a really great way. General practice right now is a shining light. And if we can't use that to influence and excite people about general practice, then, then there's something going wrong. It, it really does show our community connectedness and our genuine capability to assist and to bring the real grunt to a lot of work. And right now in Victoria, GPs are bearing an amazing load under very difficult circumstances. And we don't know where the community would be without them. And as we recover, I don't know where everyone will be without general practice. It's, it's historically been an enormous part of recovery has been the role of general practice. It particularly came out in the UK after World War II when Michael Ballant invented uh, with his wife, uh, Enid, the Ballant program for supporting GPs. So these are the messages that are right before our eyes. And I want not to use my history and my story, but to use the current work of general practice as a real guide to people to say, isn't this an amazing career? I think you're right. And in this pandemic, we're really seeing that agility and adaptability of general practice and generalism as a specialty in response to a crisis such as this. And, and a capability is just so right, Francine, that the capability and that connection to community that you know, that patients will come and see me, they will adapt to the, all the different structures we've put in place in our practice. And, you know, I saw a little something on sixminutes.com.au the other night where I think 95% of people doing telehealth chose to do that with a practice or a GP they already knew. That connection and feeling of security for people in a time of, of crisis and fear is so important. And, and not only just to be there, but we can deliver their services. And general practices are trying really hard to continue to deliver the services people need for their chronic illness and for everything else that still goes on with or without a pandemic. It's amazing. And you've just brought up telehealth. So that leads me to ask about ensuring how telehealth funding will remain in place after September and what you think the argument is for that. So firstly, I, I want to commend um, all of the, the bodies that, that got that happening, including the government. That was a fantastic achievement to get what is, you know, 10 years worth of Medicare change done in 10 days pretty well is, is an amazing thing. Look, the interesting thing is we've been wanting telehealth for a long time. So let's grab this opportunity. We have to be careful. Uh, widespread tele telehealth has its risks, and I think some of that's been exposed. Um, most of the current GP leaders, and I agree with them, are saying it's very important that we attract uh, telehealth for the patient with a practice where they already have a connection, uh, that we don't let this become some sort of sausage machine, but use it for genuine support. You know, obviously for rural patients out on properties, what a, what a boon this will be. Uh, we've had telehealth for specialist consultation. Why not for your GP who looks after your health? But there are others who are at home who are struggling. Yes, home visits are great, but we can check in more often and more easily if we can use telehealth. It can help boost the access to patients in nursing homes. And with me being in part-time practice, managing patients in nursing homes it is even more challenging because I, you know, I'm not necessarily in the area where the nursing home is on a day-to-day -day basis. But if I could telehealth, 
wow, what a difference it makes, you know. So um, we've wanted it for a long time and that's the message. We have to be careful. We need to make sure again that the government trusts us to not abuse this. And um, I think GPs have displayed uh, real power and use of telehealth. So in a way, what we need is a bit of research and data showing what we've done, how we've done it economically and efficiently. And then we just need to pick up the arguments of why we've been asking for telehealth for so long. I'm confident we can get there. And, I'm, and you know, it's the, the pandemic is a tragic situation. It has given us this opportunity and it's not going away in a hurry, I think, as we all realise, Francine. And we're going to need telehealth, even just for the pandemic purpose, for some time yet. And so we really want to make sure we refine that and get it working so well that the government can't even think about stopping it. So the last question is, what is the main message for your campaign that you'd like to tell Australian GPs? So the main message really is to know and understand our worth and value. I, I think we talk about it. We probably need more research and data to show others. Once we know, I think we can grow our confidence again as a profession confidence in our college so that we can actually work together and advocate. But once we know that, we can actually use that value and worth that we have to show others and to really demonstrate what our worth is, why we need to be central to the health system and to be considered and respected in that way. So that there isn't thought of how can we defund general practice? How can we allow others to encroach upon what general practice does well? So it, for me, it's it's what I've been saying is you use our worth to protect our turf. Um, people are worried, very worried about financial viability of their practices. And, and the way to ensure that is to, to work hard with government to think if they want a health cut, why do you cut the most efficient, most effective part of your system? And it's because we're big and we're an easy target and they have direct access through Medicare. We need to change that thinking and mentality. When we talk about people trying to encroach upon what general practice does from above, from below and from beside general practice, if we can be confident in who we are, what we deliver and show that to our patients, to the government, then we hopefully won't have schemes and people and patients going to people who will deliver one-off services that aren't integrated, that aren't about relationship and don't have the long-term benefits of what general practice really does. So my message is to know and understand our worth and to bring it and use it within the college for our confidence and outside the college to lobby and to communicate with our patients. Dr Buckley, thank you so much for your time and for chatting to me. Oh, it's been a delight, Francine, and I, I wish uh, you the best and, and all the candidates and again urge our members to, to use their vote at this really important time. And I'll also put a link to your candidate website on the Medical Republic page where this podcast is posted so that people can find out more about you and your campaign. Really appreciate that, Francine. Have a great day.